You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's story, which is a tale of a military man whose loss is of a different nature and one that must be told, so stay tuned for that. But first, wanted to again say thank you to everybody as this Hazard Ground community continues to grow, our audience continues to grow. We can't thank you enough for continuing to spread the word of the Hazard Ground. And hopefully as this continues to grow, that we continue to do bigger and better things and get bigger and better guests on the show. So once again, a heartfelt thanks to everybody who has listened. Also, a heartfelt thanks to those who have taken part in our Amazon promotion. If you're new to Hazard Ground, it's very simple. All you got to do is go to our website, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping as you start to get ready for the holidays, guys. A great time to go to hazardground.com and use our link to get to Amazon because we'll get a portion of whatever you spend, and then we donate a portion of that back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So just by doing your normal Christmas shopping, your normal holiday shopping, you can help out vets all across America. So don't forget about that hazardground.com don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites facebook twitter and instagram at hazardground at hazardground podcast keep up with the show and everything we have going on and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts particularly if you listen through apple their ratings and reviews are how they help promote the show for us so the more ratings we get the more reviews we'll get the bigger this audience will continue to grow so with all that out of the way let's get on to this week's episode and joining us this week on the hazard ground podcast is currently a cw3 in the United States Army Reserve. He has over 23 years of service between the active and reserve force. He has one deployment to Iraq. In his civilian career, he is currently a flight consultant at the Challenger Learning Center in South Carolina. He is Don Culp joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Don, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, Don is one of our listeners who actually emailed us to tell us his story, which we love because... We love hearing from you guys, but it's always great when people step up and want to tell their story. That's part of the reason that we do this, so thank you for that as well. It's always good to talk to one one of my fellow reservists, as I am currently a National Guardsman, as you guys know, after my active duty time, but great to have another reservist here on the show. But aside from that, there is another big part of your story that we are going to get to, the foundation that you have started for your daughter, Braylon, uh, who unfortunately passed away at the age of three years old. Uh, obviously something that's very personal and important to you, but a big part of your journey. So we will get into that, but let's start back at the beginning and uh, tell us how and why you got in the Army. So I kind of grew up in a military family. My uh, my stepdad was in the Navy, and he re- he wound up retiring after doing 20 years. He was He was around aviation his entire career wound up uh becoming a member of the blue angels in uh, 1989 through 1992 um and between that and uh the movie top gun when i was a kid everybody's favorite movie uh that's interested in aviation uh that kind of sold me on um being in the military i have a long lineage of family members that have just been in whether it was the army or the navy in general so that said you wanting to go into the Navy, I mean, you knew you were going to be a pilot, right? So what happened that you ended up in the Army? Well, there's these people called recruiters. And when I was 17, I was in ROTC and uh, I was a in I was high a school. Junior. Correct. Okay. Correct. I was jun- so in, when I was uh, in 11th grade, there was a uh, 
recruiter by the name of Sergeant First Class Wyatt who came and spoke to our class uh, about joining the Army. I knew that I wanted to go in. I was kind of in a hurry. I wanted to go to basic training and do all this stuff now. I didn't want to wait. So that they offered me the split option program, and I, I that got my attention. So I was like, okay, uh, what is that? And basically that's where they allow you to go to basic training um, between your gen- junior and senior year. And then after you graduate, you go to AIT and finish your training. And then he told me about the incentives that came along with that, um, depending on what job I picked. And so I decided to try to pursue that and, um, you know, I wound up going into the Army as a chemical operations specialist. Now, I did want to fly. Um, I did. I knew that I wanted to be a pilot. I knew that I, I wanted to be in the Navy. So I don't know if you're familiar or not, but – uh, there's these things called a conditional release. I had submitted, I think, maybe four or five conditional releases to try to be released to go to the to go over to the Navy, um, and it, I just never they never have signed off on it for one reason or another. Um, sometimes it was due to operational strength, and other times it was, you know, just no. So. So when you kept getting denied, did you think that you were going to get out of the military altogether because you couldn't be a pilot? Uh, I got to I gotta be honest. Uh, it did certainly put a bad taste in my mouth because I didn't understand how they could stop career progression. I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I would make a career out of it if they allowed me to just do that. Um, I never I, – I didn't want to be a chemical operations specialist. I was 17. I was young, naive, and motivated, and I just kind of took – the first opportunity that came my way. I don't regret it, but I wish I would have chosen a different route and been a little bit more patient. But it did it did leave a bad taste in my mouth a little bit. Anything about being a chemical soldier that you liked? Yeah, so when I was when I was a chemical operations specialist, I, I learned a lot. Um, so in 2000, well, I joined in 97, and I was with that unit for uh i was a chemical guy for about 10 years or so and uh you know i was an enlisted guy e2 i wound up working my way all the way up to e6 um but i i learned i got a lot of good training i learned about you know history of chemical warfare and wmds and that sort of thing and i met a lot of good people along the way some people that i still keep in contact with now um so the camaraderie of the unit was probably the uh the biggest thing the training would come second. So, you joined uh, prior to nine eleven. Where were you, and what do you remember about it? So, um, my daughter, um, I, I, I was at home to answer the question, but I had a daughter that was born just three months after nine eleven. But my roommate at the time had um, woke me up and said, "Hey, we're under attack," and uh, I went and put on put on the TV screen and, or put on the TV. And I was, I was watching the news and, uh, you know, I, I saw the second tower go into the building and I thought for sure, you know, we were going to be getting called up or something. So I called and let my, uh, employer know, Hey, I might be, I might be leaving. Um, not really sure yet, but we have been put on alert and, uh, I just kind of watched the events unfold and it was just a really scary, scary time. And I, one of the thoughts that I had in my mind was, you know, um, how this is definitely going to change things. And it was kind of a modern day Pearl Harbor, if you will. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I, I just, 
I remember thinking the same thing that, you know, as soon as it happened, like, I remember going to my armory and saying, where are we going? What's going on? Like, what are we doing? Like, you know, what's next? And nobody knew anything, right? Like, nobody had any idea um, what was going to happen and obviously how everything unfolded. Um, ultimately, you know, again, you deployed to Iraq at one point in your career, but, you know, that wasn't the, the closest you would end up coming to deploy, correct? In 2003, so my deployment to Iraq wasn't until later on, actually after I completed uh, flight school a little bit later. Um, but we mobbed in 2003. Uh, as soon as, you know, we um, – Bush, President Bush announced that, you know, we were going to be attacking – Iraq and what have you, uh, or the Iraqi army, we were already in preparation to mobilize to um, Fort Stewart to get our train up and uh, do some stuff with um, Third ID. Um, so at 2003, after you know 9/11, that was the closest at that point. Everything else had just been training. Yeah, kind of uh, crazy stuff. Uh, before we get to the deployment, though, you finally do get your wish. Um, and end up getting to flight school, correct? Correct. Um, so in, I found out about an opportunity that uh, the Army, well, the Guard had, and basically um, I didn't know that we had aviation assets so close to me. Um, and so it was being that I was essentially going to do a lateral move from one component within the Army to another, um, it just seemed like all the doors opened. I, I, I submitted um, – a conditional release to go into the guard. Um, I attended my warrant officer selection board and my flight school board and um, got picked up and all that stuff started in 2008. All right. So finally in 2009, you head off to Fort Rucker to go to flight school. Correct. So um, January 16th of 2009, my daughter Braylon was born. Five days after she was born, I had to report um, to first walk at Fort Rucker to start warrant officer candidate school. Wow. So you going you're going to walk first and then you're going to flight school, correct? Or is it happening so concurrently? Everything kind of happens c concurrently. They had all they had all the training built into the 18 to 24 month cycle depending on the platform that you flew. Yeah, see, it's interesting. I, I'm in the Army for 20-plus years. I still don't know anything about the Warrant Officer Corps. Nobody does. You guys, you guys operate under cloak, cloak of darkness and secrecy. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard that a lot. Okay, so <laughs> – after after going through the uh, the training, when when do you finally finish? Like, what month and year is it? I finished I finished uh, flight school in April of 2011. Now, it, I was unique in the sense that um, there were a couple of times when I had to um, stop my training and restart, and it was due to the issues that my daughter had during flight training. Um, during during that extent, she had been life flighted on two occasions from Fort Rucker, Alabama, to Sacred Heart Children's Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. And uh, naturally, I couldn't focus on my training and my family at the same time, especially with her being in a different state. So, um, but it was April 2011. Okay. All right. So, well, let's kind of. I mean, how are you mentally handling all this? You know, I mean, you, you're getting to this point of, the, of being able to get to this dream that you have for your career, and yet. At the same time, you know, you're dealing with all these these health issues with your young daughter. I was young. I was hungry and I was motivated. And also at the same time, I did something that I've always been advised not to do. And I kind of put all my eggs in one basket. So it was kind of a no fail option for me because here I am finally get the shot to go to flight school. I've moved my family from South Carolina 
to Alabama. My wife had been never been anywhere but you know South Carolina other than college. You know, sure. um, here we are living in another state, and I've got a family that's dependent upon me. So um, mentally, uh, you know, I would I I, I remained focused and I expressed my issues to um, those that were over me, if you will. And um, I took them up on some options that were extended to me. And I ensured that when I came back into training that I was ready to go and able to fulfill the requirements in order to pass. Okay. So you, you graduate flight school, you get your wings, right? And what, what helicopter are you on? I was on the uh, Apache Longbow. Okay. So you're, you're this pilot that, you know, is a charge with, uh, you know, a very serious mission as far as, you know, protecting troops on the ground and everything else. Um, shortly thereafter, um, you guys get popped for deployment, correct? That's correct. I graduated. So I graduated in April and May 3rd. We, my unit was off for our deployment. All right. So does your wife say to you, Don, you can't go? N- no. Um, there were a couple of things that came across my mind. Number one, we had just moved back to Fort Rucker. I had a special needs daughter and, um, uh, I hadn't truly deployed in my military career. And I feel like it's a matter of personal opinion. Um, but I feel like you truly, you, you truly get an understanding of what it means to serve your country when you actually deploy. Sure. Um, and it gives you an appreciation for how good we actually have it here when you're able to see, you know, things on the other side of the world that most people don't. But anyhow, all that being said, no, she wasn't. She understood that I had to go um, for many reasons. Um, one, because I felt like I needed to because the rest of the unit was going. Two, uh, our family needed the uh, benefits that would come along from the deployment. And you, you mean as uh, far as the, and, the health insurance and everything else while your daughter correct. was going through everything she was going through? Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. And again, I'm, I, this is, forgive me if this is tough for you to talk about because obviously it's very personal in nature, but I'm just, you know, you, you get there. I, I always found it, and, and I found this as a, as a leader, whenever my soldiers' minds were back home with anything, whether it's family, loved ones, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever it may be, money issues, they were so much less effective in a deployed environment. How was your mind consistently not back on your daughter and all she was going through? It, it, it was it was really um, a unique mindset to say the least. I mean, she had periods where she would do really, really well and there wouldn't be any issues. Um, but I thought about them constantly as everybody else that deploys um, does. Um, and I knew my wife had a good handle on everything. She had the right resources. She had the right network set up. And my wife was a trooper. I mean, she kind of got a crash course in caring for my daughter when we were in flight school because there was a lot of stuff thrown her way. Right. And in flight school, you're in flight school. It was kind. Flight school was kind of like preparation for her uh, to be at home without me when I was on a deployment. Because again, you're never home. I mean, the flight line. You're there at four thirty, and you know I would do my thing at the flight line. Go. To, academics and after academics i would go to the library to study and then i'd be home at eight o'clock and then it was dinner bed repeat the next day so it kind of prepped her um now my mind state overall i was thinking about my family and everything and nothing 
I was able when we first started the deployment, um, the first part of our deployment, you have to go to, um, you know, a mob station and do a train up. Uh, and I was able to do what I needed to do effectively. Then the issues that, um, uh, happened during the deployment didn't actually happen until about two to three months after I had left, but we had two incidents back to back where I actually had to leave and then come back on two different occasions. Yeah, I do want to get to that. Real quick, it just dawned on me. We were in Iraq at the same time in 2011. Really? Yeah, I was there for the entire closeout, so, mm. which, was, which was interesting because we, we went there to leave, which I always thought was asinine. You know? <laughs> it's like, let's just go. Like, you know, and if it's time to go, let's just go. What are we waiting for? But different discussion for a different day. Um, but that said, as you mentioned, you got called home on emergency leave. Tell me about that morning, that day. I mean, what do you remember about it? Well, my wife... The, the first time my wife called me and told me that my daughter, you know, had a seizure and she was very lethargic and she was just laying on the floor and she was kind of pale white. And naturally that um, really got to me and I, I, I knew that I needed to be there. Um, so I reached out to my commander and they took the necessary actions in order to try to see about getting me home. So I, I flew home. Uh, my daughter, if I recall correctly, she was in the hospital probably two to three days the first time. And uh, she was two at this time. Um, and, you know, she was released, uh, you know, and got back to her normal self. And I left and went back. Okay. So you went back to Iraq on your deployment. Correct. All right. And then she had to, you had to go back home a second time? Yes. I had to go back home a second time. It was probably about a month later. It was probably about a month later. Um, she, um, my wife told me that she had everything that I didn't need to come, but this time was a little bit worse. My daughter was in the hospital for, I want to say nine days or so, somewhere around there, but she had had, uh, multiple seizures and she had a stroke. Um, in that, in, in that time frame. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Have the doctors told you anything about what's going on with her yet? Like, do you have any clear diagnosis? Yeah. So when we, we were, when we were actually in flight school, my daughter, it was, we had, so my daughter was part of, uh, EFMP, exceptional family member program. They did a lot of mm -hmm. testing and stuff on her. That's a, uh, not sure if you're familiar, anybody out there in the community is familiar, but it's a program that the army has for uh, special needs family members. Um, and so what that did was that basically was able to set up recurring therapy, uh, physical therapy and cognitive therapy and that sort of thing, uh, for my daughter when we were at Fort Rucker and also when we came back home and when I was on the deployment. But, um, we found out that my daughter had a rare chromosomal deletion and with that chromosomal deletion, um, you know, seizures were apparently a part of it along with some other things. And at the time, the, the chromosomal deletion was so rare, they didn't know much about it. But as we continue to have medical advances and things of that nature, we're finding more and more and more people either with the deletion or they're getting more research and information about it. Um, so you just, the thing with a seizure or whatever is, is you just never know when it's going to happen. And then obviously up until this point, stroke who would have ever thought a stroke um but it was this it was at this time when things got a little bit more um significant with 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 her like the doctors actually made recommendations of me not going back um 
and my command was asking me, you know, what, what, what's the deal? And I can't speak in medical terms. I was trying to explain to them the best way that I could as far as the, the gravity of the situation. But instead, I just put the doctor directly on the phone with my leadership and let her say what she needed to say. And I recall very vividly her basically saying that I, I probably shouldn't return on the deployment because my daughter's condition could be fatal. And what did your commander say? Well, after she said that to him, uh, I spoke to him directly, and I explained to him the reasons that I needed to come back. Um, Which were? And, well, one, there's other people over there on a deployment who have families back home, and they have other issues that are going on as well. Um, you know, so uh, again, I kind of felt the need that if they're over there, I need to be there too, um, and then. You know, if my daughter obviously came into mind because the benefits, the health benefits and everything that were there, but everybody, when they're deployed, you, you know, you can't always come home. I was afforded the luxury or the, not the luxury. I was afforded, afforded an opportunity, a benefit to be able to come home and be with my family. There's a lot of people who have deployed many, many, many have done way more than me and they haven't been afforded, you know, those benefits. So I felt the need to go back. And um, it was important that I did so. Did your commander argue with you on it? Did, they, did he fight you on it? Did he say, no, really, listen, I'm going to make this decision for you. You're going home. To me, no. To me, no, he didn't. Okay. He didn't. So I, I did wind up going back. Did your wife ever say, all right, maybe it's time for you to stay home? Maybe in the back of her mind, but never out loud. That, but ne but never out loud to me. My wife, she's a uh, she's a trooper. She was, I mean, fully prepared. She was definitely more calm about the situation than what I was, and um, she ha she had a good good handle on the entire situation. I mean, when when the doctor said it was fatal, did you ever have the thought in your head, "What if I go back and God forbid something happens to her, I'd never forgive myself"? Yes. Okay. I, I thought I thought about that. I thought about that often. So how'd you reconcile it? I focused on the tasks that were in front of me, and um, I made sure to maintain contact with my wife to get updates. And if something else were to happen, my wife would, you know, let me know. Again, you know, with everything, with everything that you do, there's pros and cons to every decision that you make, and there's there's risks. Um, I had a job. My job entailed me being gone and relying on my wife to take care of certain things when I'm not around. And uh, that was just a decision that had to be made. So, All right. So you go back. Uh, let's talk about the deployment itself as far as your mission and things that you did and uh, what you were, you know, which, which you saw, so to speak. What was that about? So when I so being that I was a new aviator to the unit, um, they were essentially, uh, obviously we had to get oriented on the mission and everything else. When I first actually came out of flight school and came back to the unit, I was actually working as a, uh, I was working in an S3 shop. I was actually working as a, uh, a, a battle captain. Um, now typically, you know, your captains serve in that role, hence the name captain, but me being a W1, I was called a battle woge, warrant officer, junior grade. Um, 
and there was there was like two or three of us, if I recall correctly, uh, that were in this position. So um, I was waiting to get pushed kind of to a line company. Uh, the line companies, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie, are the ones that typically do the flying, um, majority of the flying. And then you got your your staff that are assigned to a uh, line company as well that you know get in and fly every now and again. But I eventually got pushed to a line company, and I started going through my RO progression. And I, I, you know, we did some flights, and we were in Taji, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were in Taji, and we we were doing RO progression flights, and you know, flights in the AO. Uh, there were different various missions that were assigned, um, whether it was convoy security, whether it was uh, area reconnaissance, things of that nature. Um, my time was spent on progression there were different uh training or there were different flights where we were able to communicate with uh, we did some gunnery we did some uh communication with jtax and uh we also did some um communication exercises and stuff with some j stars different helicopter platforms sending digital messaging back and forth did you ever think your life was in danger while you were flying well i mean I was so happy to be flying and I was kind of still and uh, uh, I never felt that my life was in danger because number one, you got an Apache <laughs> wrapped around you and the, the armament and everything that's on the aircraft itself. I mean, somebody, uh, I know it happens and stuff, but people have to be pretty bold and brave to want to try to get your attention. Um, so I was, I was just happy to be finally be able to be flying, being deployed and flying in a, in a, in a war zone, if you will. And, um, just more, more in a state of awe, I guess, if that makes, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, as much as things back home must've been tugging at you, I, I suppose when you're behind the controls of an Apache helicopter, you're, you're so locked in. None of those things ever sort of pop in your mind, do they? I tried not to let those things pop in my mind while I was flying. I tried to focus on the mission at hand, uh, whatever that mission may have been. Um, I know that, you know, it's, it's you and another guy in the aircraft and you can't be distracted by focusing on other things. And if you, if you are focused on other things and you're, you're a hazard, not only to yourself, the guy in the back, or if there's people on the ground that you're trying to work with, you're a hazard to them as well. So. All right. So that deployment finally ends, right? Uh, when do you get back home? Uh, I got back home May of 2012. Okay. Um, and I, as far as, you know, deployments are concerned, it's fairly normal as far as the deployment itself and going back, right? Correct. I mean, was there any, any sort of, uh, casualties that you guys sustained within, I know, I know it's tough for the aviators too, but the guys on the ground or anything? No, no, no. Everything, cause everything, you know, everything went, it was, a, it was a really good deployment, um, it was it was a really good point. We learned a lot. We didn't suffer any losses or anything, and um, we were able to execute the mission that was given to us successfully. When you get back home, um, you know, and and you finally see your daughter for the first time, um, you know, what are you thinking and feeling? Man, it was it, it was it was a great feeling. I was really proud because during the time, so from the time that she. Uh, was hospitalized for that long period of time. And she actually, um, during, during that episode when she was in the hospital and she had those seizures and the, and the stroke, she actually suffered, uh, a portion of her brain was damaged. A, a lobe in her brain had suffered some damage. And so, um, 
that was pretty significant. And that's the last time I saw her um, before coming back. During that time, she progressed significantly. She learned sign language. She learned how to feed herself. She learned how to walk. My wife sent me a cool video of my daughter walking in the living room of my home. So to be able to come home and actually see her doing that face-to-face or in person, I mean, it was just like, man, you talk about a girl with a fighting spirit. Well, that was my daughter. Um, I, I was glad. I was glad to be back, and I was glad that she was um, developing like she was. So take me through the next couple of months. I mean, you know, obviously you're going back to uh, the reserves. Are you are you going back to a civilian job at this time, or you're working full time for the for the reserves? So, well, I was I was in the guard. I was in the guard at the guard. Then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was in the guard then, and then um, so I come back from deployment. And while I was actually on deployment, I was speaking with a company in Jacksonville. Um, they were they were looking for. Uh, uh, you know, a, an Apache subject matter expert, if you will. Um, and so I actually took the job, got hired on. So I get back May of 2012, June of 2012. I actually wind up moving to Jacksonville, Florida to start working for this company. Um, it's in July. We close on our house. My wife comes down with me and we're living in Jacksonville and I'm coming up. Well, for the first six months after deployment, you typically don't fly because you got the aircraft got to go through reset and everything else. Mm-hmm. And and so I made the transition. <clears throat> excuse me. We had to go through our yellow ribbon uh, meetings, if you will. But then after that, um, we were just in Jacksonville, and I was working. And then um, when it was time to start flying again, I would commute up to South Carolina and you know do my flying or whatever requirements were were needed. So um, the transition went well. Uh, initially. And then what happened? Uh, well, six months after, six months after we had gotten back, I started my day as normal. I had started my day as normal. I, I, um, well, let me, let me back up that progression and stuff that my daughter was doing. The first thing that I wanted to do before I actually got back into the swing of things and was working a full-time job, I took my family on a vacation. Um, good move. yeah, so so I knew that I was going to be moving to Jacksonville, so I wanted to show my wife and kids around in Jacksonville. And um, so what we wound up doing is is we wound up leaving South Carolina. I took my kids to SeaWorld, Marineland, and I think we went to uh, I think we went to Busch Gardens. Then either way, we went to SeaWorld, Disney World. That's what we did: Disney World, SeaWorld, and then we went to Marineland, and then we finished up by going around in. Uh, um, Jacksonville, where we we're going to be living. Well, while we were at Disney World, <clears throat> we had just literally gotten in the gate. We literally had just gotten in the gate, and um, we were taking pictures, getting ready to get on the little trolley or the tram, whatever it is that takes you um, up to the park. And I noticed something awkward about my my daughter's face. She was looking off to the side, and you knew that she was getting ready to have a seizure by the way she would look. I mean, she would look off to the side, and she wouldn't look directly at you, and she wasn't responding to you. So... We kept going just, you know, um, and we kept checking on her just to make sure she was okay. I just had a feeling something bad was getting ready to happen. And sure enough, as soon as we get through the gate, my daughter starts having a seizure right there. And so they had to call the emergency staff at Disney World. And um, she wound up uh, being taken by ambulance to Arnold Palmer's. I don't know if it's a children's hospital or a hospital in general, but she she got sent there. And she was in the hospital for two or three days. And um, my other kids were like, well – what are we going to do now? So my wife stayed in the hospital with her while I took my other kids 
to the park and everything else. And I kept checking in with my wife to see how Braylon was doing and everything else. We wound up finishing up the vacation and then, you know, then transitioning to normal life. But that happened in June. And then I was working, uh, and you know, everything was going fine. Normal life. You would think there were no other incidents with Braylon. And then, uh, the morning of, uh, October, it was October 2nd. Um, um, I was, I, I drove to work like normal. I worked probably 15 minutes from my house and, uh, I got a call. It was from my wife. I was talking to my boss at the time. And so I didn't answer. Well, my phone starts ringing again. And, uh, I know that typically if I don't answer the first time and she, she calls right back, something's generally wrong. So, um, I answered, it wasn't my wife. It was my neighbor. And my neighbor said, Hey Don, this is, you know, Jean from across the street. I said, uh, yes, ma'am. I said, is everything okay? She said, Don, you need to get home. Um, she said, there's, there's stuff going on with Braylon. And I said, Oh, is she having another seizure? And I didn't mean to sound so like cavalier about it. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's what I thought it was. And my wife had a good handle on everything. The only thing that I didn't process was, you know, um, why is, why is she calling me? It just, I didn't put much thought into that other than asking initially, you know, what's up essentially. But so anyway, she says, yeah, you need to come home. So I told my boss immediately, I said, Hey, I need to go home. I think my daughter's having a seizure. So I drive home and it was weird because, uh, no music was playing in my car. I, I, I didn't even bother to turn the radio on. Uh, um, and I just drove home. And, uh, when I got there, I lived in a cul-de-sac and my entire cul-de-sac was filled up with cop cars and an ambulance. Um, and, uh, I saw people on my front porch and I saw my wife and my wife was face down on the front porch. And so I pull in the driveway, uh, and I get out of my car and I go to walk up to the front door and there's a guy standing right at the front door. And the guy says, um, are you Mr. Culp? I said, I am. Uh, um, and anyway, he says, uh, he says, Hey, I said, well, can I, can I see my daughter? They, he goes, well, the ambulance is getting ready to leave. And I said, Oh, or I said, the ambulance is getting ready to leave. I said, so my daughter's going to the hospital. He said, no, sir. She's inside. And I said, Oh, so she's okay then. And he goes, no, sir. And at this point, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, it's Looking still not back, hitting you. <laughs> it, 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 it just, it just wasn't clicking. Right. And then finally I got this epiphany and I looked at him cause he said, sir. And he stopped like he was hesitant to tell me what was going on. And I finally just looked at him and I don't know, again, I don't know why I said this, but I just said, look, I said, are you trying to tell me my daughter's dead is exactly what I said. Uh, and he goes, yes, sir. I'm sorry. She didn't make it. So, my wife was off to the side. I kind of move him out of the way and I go right in the door. <clears throat> and as I'm walking in, um, when you first walked into my house down there, to the right, you had my office. To the left, you had a dining room and you walk in and then there's my living room right past those rooms. I saw my daughter laying on the floor with a blanket over. Uh, um, the thing that caused me to lose it was I saw my daughter's foot sticking out. Oh, and... Um, that hit me like a ton of bricks, and it was at that point when I when I really lost it. Two cops in there, 
and they pushed me back because I, I try to get to my daughter. They pushed me back, and um, everything kind of unfolded then. So later on that afternoon, <clears throat> later on that afternoon, we were talking about how um, we were talking about how um, we had to plan our funeral. Uh, when the, when the officers and everybody was first there, um, I held my daughter, my pastor from the local church came up and sat with us. We were angry. My wife was very angry. I held my daughter in my arms and I didn't want to let her go. It came time to, they were treating everything like a crime scene. They wouldn't let us touch her at first. And she was on the floor and I kept saying, look, can I get her off the floor? Because she's laying where my dogs lie. And, uh, they were like, we, we can't do that right now. So they were treating everything like a crime scene at first because it's not normal for a two, three – well, she was three then, mm-hmm. a three-year-old child to just pass. So after after that happened, um, I was finally able to get her, and my wife and I held on to her. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was that moment on. I was, I was forever changed. You know, the last uh, – the last – little bit of that day um, are kind of vague, but I very distinctly remember when the coroner came and they wanted me to let her go. And uh, I, I, I refused. I wanted to be the one to put her on the gurney. I wanted to be the last person to hold her. And uh, they took her. And then after that, it was just, you know, talking about plans as, as far as how we plan the funeral for our daughter and, talking about things that we never thought that we would be talking about. Don, I'm so sorry. I mean, there aren't words to, you know, assuage your loss. Um, but, uh, you know, you speak so cour- courageously about it and the whole experience. Um, but my heart goes out to you or your wife and your entire family um, for the tragedy that you endured and, and the loss that you're still going through to this day. Um, and I certainly appreciate you being kind enough to share those details with us. Uh, I mean, again, um, I'm just, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a it's been, it's gotten easier to talk about. I mean, it's still, when you talk about the, the raw events or the, the, the events of that day, I mean, it still definitely hits hard or hits home, but it, yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's just something that, you know, comes with the territory, and I'm sure there's other people out there who have sacrificed with military service and everything else. And, um, you know, I, I just – there's so many more people out there that have done far more than me and uh, and everything else and their sacrifices that they make, um, their losses that they suffer. Not everybody always hears their stories. Um and um, there's just a lot that comes with military service, and the military is a great career opportunity, and there's a lot of benefits that come with it. You just got to be willing to do what's required of you, and um, it's just – there's nothing I regret about it at all. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean because you, you hit the word. I mean look, when you're robbed of of a loved one at, at such a young age um, – there, there's, I think regret is a word where it's like, I regret that I didn't have more time or that there were so many things we didn't get a chance to do. It's not so much what you left behind you. It's, it's what you didn't get a chance to do 
And then when you think about all the things that you didn't get a chance to do, you know, whether it's a daddy daughter date or anything like that, do you, do you, did you then start to look back and go, I should have been at home more? Yes. So the biggest issue that I've had a hard time dealing with, um, remember I told you when I was in flight school that, um, I told you when I was in flight school that I, I, I put all my eggs in one basket and I was absolutely in the mind state that I could not fail. I had to pass. So maintaining that mindset and passing flight school, being so dedicated to the process, I came home. Her birthday again was January 16th. On her second birthday, I walked in the door and I had no clue it was her birthday. I came home uh, from the flight line came home and it was her second birthday and I just went on about, you know, my normal routine. My wife stood there and kind of looked at me and she goes, you don't even know what day it is, do you? And I said, and then I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget that because that was the last birthday that I get to spend with her because it, that, so second birthday was the last birthday I got to spend with her. Her third birthday, I was deployed, and then she died three months before what would have been her fourth birthday, and I would have been home for that. So absolutely, I have um, – there was a lot of regret there. Um, I, not a regret that I should have been home. I don't regret my deployment. I just regret that I didn't take advantage of the time while she was still here. I regret – I feel like I let her down as a dad. I feel like I let her down as a family member, somebody that cared about her. My wife was there for you know, as, as much as any – well, my, maintain the fact that my wife is a trooper. She did everything for Braylon. She loved her very much, um, was excellent. It was me who was lacking with her, and that's been a big regret of mine, and that's probably something that I'll take to the grave to be quite honest. Um, when you express that emotion to your wife, what does she say to you? Or should I assume that you've already expressed it to her? I mean, you've had no. that conversation with her, I assume, right? Yeah, we've had, you know, we've had plenty of conversations and I've, ex I've expressed that to her. And that's, that was part of the reason, you know, I've, I've tried to look back and I tried to ponder different ways that in which, you know, that's lost time. That's time that I'm never going to get back with her. And so I've kind of looked at ways that I could be able to honor her and kind of carry on her memory and things of that nature. And so in, in doing so and having those thoughts, I've had many discussions with my wife and I've expressed those thoughts to her. And, you know, she, she has seen me upset and voicing those, those thoughts to her. Um, so, but there's other kids that we have that we have to take care of as well. And we share stories about breathing with them and, I've tried to teach my kids the importance of, you know, kind of living life to its fullest because you don't want to have regret. Right. So. Well, you said it gets a little bit easier. Um, what parts other than what you just mentioned, do you still struggle with? Well, when we came back, when we, when we came back from deployment and after that happened, my, my priorities changed a lot. Um, my family, you know, during the deployment and flight school and everything, it was all aviation. It was flying. It was deploying and doing all that. It became kind of a family for it, it, And it should have always been this way. It was my mistake, but it should have been a family first careers and all that stuff. Second. Now we were kind of in a position where 
our lives and everything kind of went hand in hand with my military service. And it was just a unique situation. But that being said, with my priorities shifting, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't where I once was with proficiency. Um, my readiness was affected. And I knew that I had changed and I knew that I had to, I had to, uh, make a decision. So I went to go try to retire in 2017, um, wound up separating and going into the IRR. And, uh, I came back in, um, because of, um, I, I came back in because ultimately I wasn't able to retire. Um, there were some paperwork issues, if you will, uh, years of service, that sort of thing. But, um, the areas that I really struggle with now is every now and again, when the anniversary comes around, I reflect on those, those moments that we've discussed. I reflect on, you know, the lessons that I've learned, the children that we've had since. And, um, I don't, it's, it's not really a, um, it's not really a, a, a sadness type thought. Of course I miss her. Um, but I've, I've taken all of those emotions and I've used it to help me focus on the ways that I can actually honor her. And, um, and in doing so, I've been able to start a foundation in her memory, um, a private, uh, foundation 501 C three. And, um, we've done some fundraising events. We've done some stuff already in the community locally. Um, and for the EFMP program, actually at, at Fort Jackson, we did some stuff for them as well. So that's kind of where I am right now. Uh, tell them the name of the foundation and how they can help out if they want to support. The foundation is called the Braylon Aubrey Foundation. The, uh, the uh, email, or not email, the website is the BraylonAubreyFoundation.org. And basically, this is something that um, I've started up in order to help um, those, specifically children, with impairing conditions. Um, now, because I've started the foundation up myself, um, one of the things that I'm trying to do to establish the legitimacy of our foundation is, is I'm trying to start locally, um, and I'm giving back to the entities that played a, a role in my daughter's care. So, for example, <clears throat> there's a local school district here um, that had a pre-K special services program. My daughter would go there um, while I was deployed, and they would, um, you know, work with her um, and get her prepared for starting K-5. Well, they've done this with other kids. Well, after our last fundraising event, we were able to donate money. We donated $1,000 to their program um, so that they could buy supplies for the kids that attend this program. But we're, we're, we're looking to try to get uh, continued continuing to be a to get established, if you will. Um, we are still laying the groundwork, still laying, laying the foundation, but ideally we want to be able to be an impact in our community and we want to help families that, um, aren't able to necessarily fill all the care that their kids need. For example, if we didn't have TRICARE, um, I don't think all of our life, all of my daughter's life flights, all of her therapy, I think there would have come a point where a lot of that stuff wouldn't have been covered. And there's some people that find themselves in a situation where their insurance is kind of capped on coverage. And ideally, I want to be 
I, w I would like for the foundation to be kind of that bridge for that gap mm -hmm. and step in and aid in people's care and things of that nature as well. Well, certainly, again, uh, BraylonAubreyFoundation.org uh, is the website if you guys want to help out and certainly uh, keep the memory of Braylon alive. And again, you know, obviously a cause that's very personal to you, but one that, uh, you know, can benefit a lot of other people who may be dealing with the same thing. Again, BraylonAubreyFoundation.org. Uh, what is your status with the military right now? So I am still in. I'm a CW3. I'm currently working with uh, Army uh, warrant officer retention, Army Reserve uh, warrant officer retention. Um, so I'm basically those that are interested in, <clears throat> you know, becoming a warrant officer. My job is to uh, talk to them about being a warrant officer in the reserves and the career opportunities that are available to them. And like you said, it, like a lot of people think that uh, they don't, there's, they don't know a lot about the warrant officer corps. And there's so many opportunities, so many educational opportunities for warrant officers, service members in general. But the jobs, uh, th there's so many jobs that are available to warrant officers in, in any uh, Army component, whether it's active duty, guard, or reserves. But my job is to kind of talk to the soldiers about these opportunities. And a lot of the things that I do or my approach is telling them my story from the military because a lot of people that are in the reserve component or a lot of people that are in the guard component, you know, if you're stuck at a unit – and you, you're not getting released on a conditional release or things of that nature, and you think it's a showstopper for your career, a lot of people get out because of stuff like that. But if you're persistent and if you find out about good opportunities and you're informed, there's a lot of good stuff out there that can benefit you both in the military world and then carry over to the civilian side. So it's my job now to kind of make people aware of those opportunities to them. So that's what I'm doing now. Very well said. You mentioned the civilian side, uh, in which you are a flight consultant at, at the Challenger Learning Center – in South Carolina, and it's part of the Richland County School District. Um, how, what is this program, and how does it exist? So, the Challenger Learning Center uh, is a it, it was created. It's a foundation that was created in memory of the Challenger Space Shuttle crew uh, they, that lost their lives um, <clears throat> during that disaster. Yeah, nineteen eighty six. Right. The family members created this foundation in their memory, and the idea was to promote aerospace through STEM. So they created a bunch of centers globally, and um, we happen to be one of those centers. We're also unique in the sense that we're one of those centers that fall within a school district as well. So <clears throat> I um, here, I teach kids about aviation. Um, I teach them everything from flight planning to basic, basic flight. And we have different summer camps that we do. I teach them about flying fixed wing rotary wing as well as drones and we cover all of it it's incredible um you know the passion you have i, I think really comes through in all this uh, and and is there a sort of convergence if you will um about flying and, and anything with your daughter i mean it, it, does it does it constantly remind you of her because you spent so much of her life you know behind the the controls of a helicopter. I mean, does any of that sort of, you know, all come together for you in some way? Yeah. So as I continue to try to uh, develop the foundation and I figure the next steps that I want to go, by the way, when you start a foundation on your own, it's not a very easy thing to do. I mean, I'm kind of learn learning as I go. I've been learning as I go and I've been relying on a lot of people, but I've always thought, <clears throat> I've always thought 
or wondered as of late, not always, as of late, I've wondered how I can tie my flying and my daughter together because they happen again, as I told you, I left for Canada school, January 21st, 2009. She was born January 16th. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm one of the bridges that I'm trying to cross right now is I'm trying to see if I can tie my flying to the, the foundation and different ideas that I have is one idea is, is that I would like to, if there's somebody with a child, uh, with a disabling condition and they can't afford an airline ticket to go somewhere, maybe I could fly them. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Or, or, um, there's different organizations that do what I'm about to say, but, um, I've pondered the idea if there's a kid with an impairing condition, but he's, he loves aviation, um, provided, um, they're able to handle a flight. Why not be that entity that maybe takes them up and fl- gives them a flight, let them experience that. Um, those are another, those are other areas that I want to explore with the foundation. And that's really on my horizon right now, as far as how I can tie my flying to Braylon's memory. I, th- I think about it all the time because the two are intertwined and, um, yeah. So, no, I mean, that's incredible. I, I think it's, it's really, uh, in sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's just a great way to put it all together, um, and, and continue to honor your daughter, but also at the same time you know, take all your energy into something that you're truly passionate about and truly love. Um, and, and therefore, I mean, obviously you're still passionate and, and love her, uh, but it's all sort of wrapped into one. And I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. All right. So when are you going to get out of the army? Do you know yet? Have you figured that part out yet? Well, I'm, I'm at a crossroads now. Um, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm 41, 23 years in W3. Um, and, this position that I'm in right now is a temporary, a temporary deal. It's not meant to stay in, you know, for like 10 years or whatever. So, um, on a, I'm at a crossroads right now where I'm trying to decide if I'm going to return back to aviation or if I'm actually, uh, just going to retire. Um, the army has its benefits and I gotta be, I gotta be quite frank with you. I feel like after that last experience um, that I talked about when I was with the, uh, the the attack battalion, I feel like I left some stuff on the table that I could have accomplished because I am passionate about aviation. I care about military service and everything else. I feel like there's still some things that I've got left in me to accomplish um, that I can only do by going back to an aviation unit. So I'm exploring those options now. And um, What does your you know, wife say about those options? My wife supports me. She supports okay. my decision to do so. Sure. Um, there's, it's advantageous for my family for me to be in as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But, but with, with coming in uh, or staying in rather and returning back to aviation, you know, we're, we're well aware of the things that come along with that. For example, high op tempo, you know, um, deployments and everything else. But you weigh, you weigh all of that and you know, the, the benefits clearly outweigh the cons. Um, so I'm exploring that right now and I'm looking at probably learning to fly a different platform. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. What do you, mm. which platform is that? So, um, what's available to me now is either Blackhawks or, or Chinooks. Not a bad choice. No. Um, 
flying is flying. If you're passionate about flying, it doesn't really matter what you, what you, what you fly. But um, it, I think both have a unique mission. I kind of like the Chinook mission uh, a little bit better. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring and, you know, finding out which opportunity reveals itself first, to be honest. Well, wish you nothing but the best of luck. Uh, however it ends up for you, uh, I'm sure there is a, a path that you'll, you'll end up on that, that is the right one. It seems to have been the case for you throughout your entire career. And, uh, again, continued success, uh, and growth, uh, with your daughter's foundation. Uh, and again, thank you so much for just being so courageous. I can't imagine what it must be like to have to relive these emotions anytime someone asked you about it, but in the same respect, there, there might be some catharsis to it. Um, from just being able to share that and let people know about Braylon and, and who she was and, uh, you know, how much she impacted your guys' lives. And so, again, sharing all that, I think, uh, is probably the most courageous thing you can do, uh, much more so than combat, per se. I, I understand, and I appreciate the kind words. And, you know, it, 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 it is a way that I can honor her, and I, I plan on doing whatever I can to honor her and ensuring that her memory and legacy live on. Again, Braylon Arbery Foundation. Braylon is B-R-A-E-L-Y-N. ArbreyFoundation.org is where you guys can go uh, to support the foundation, uh, help keep Braylon's memory alive. And certainly, Don, as I mentioned, best of luck to you uh, and your wife, your entire family. And certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.